This is Historical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is about the unlikely teenage queen who ended up ruling an empire. Hello, dear listeners. I hope you had a wonderful holiday and welcome to a new decade. Now that it's 2020, I hope you're ready to party like the roaring 20s, but minus the Great Depression. In Seattle, there were a bunch of Gatsby-themed New Year's Eve parties, but they all wanted exorbitant cover charges, so I took my flapper dress to the neighborhood witch bar and got free champagne at midnight, so I think that was a fortuitous start to a new decade. I hope that you had fun too. Before we start this month's biography episode, I just want to read this review that came in last month from M. Dapple titled Delightful Escape. I love Immortal Perfumes and love this podcast. JT is very relatable and really drops you into the scene with her storytelling. I also love all the pop culture recommendations at the end of each episode for further exploration. I've dabbled in other historical podcasts, but with JT's wit and dashes of feminism keeping it real, this one is definitely my favorite. Thank you for such a sweet review, my friend. I'm really happy that people are enjoying the feminist bent to the podcast. At first, I was kind of afraid to editorialize too much, but I am a person who cannot hide emotions, particularly disdain, so I'm just going to lean into it. Thanks also, M, for checking out Immortal Perfumes. I literally do this podcast for fun on the side, and I've heard from a lot of people who have tried out my perfumes after listening, which I'm just in awe of. Thank you all very much. Okay, I'm going to move on now before I get too emotional from the love fest. Today, we are talking about Queen Victoria. She has long been one of my favorite queens. I used to have a perfume based on her. Maybe I should resurrect that. And in the two surveys that I've done about subjects for historical, she's come out at the top of both lists. So I know that you're ready for this. Other than the reigning Queen Elizabeth, Victoria is probably one of the most recognizable queens of England, partially because she's still relatively recent. She died in 1901, so we've got pictures, and partially because her reign was the absolute pinnacle of the power of the British Empire, and she literally ruled over a quarter of the planet. Yes, at the height of Victoria's reign, she ruled over 400 million people. Can't even fathom that. Now, a lot of my favorite things are Victorian. The Brontes, Charles Dickens, the architecture, the seances, the prudish outward behavior the gothic horror, all of these people and things flourished during her reign. So I think I've always just kind of equated her with being at the forefront of the culture of this spirit of creativity and ingenuity. But dear listeners, I was not prepared to have my heart broken by Victoria, and that's sort of what happened in my research for this episode. To be sure, she's not on par with jerks I love to hate like Henry VIII, but she was anti-woman suffrage, and she was also pretty indifferent to the mass suffering of her subjects in England, let alone across the world. So today we're going to take a hard look at one of history's most celebrated queens. A lot of her personal story has been romanticized in recent film and TV, but as always, truth is far more complicated. So dear listeners, imagine yourself a lonely young girl locked away in a crumbling palace as we settle in for the story of Queen Victoria. Chapter 1. The Mad King and a Rush to Produce an Heir. Much like the Revolutionary War, it all began with King George III, the Mad King. George had 15 children, nine of which were sons, but the sons of George III were notorious for their lives of vice. They either eschewed marriage completely or happily lived with their mistresses and illegitimate children. In 1811, the Regency Act was passed due to George III's declining mental health, and his eldest surviving son became King Regent and ruled until George III's death 10 years later. Newly styled George IV was not well-liked by the British public. He was selfish and extravagant, corpulent, and a heavy drinker. George IV had an arranged marriage and hated his wife, so once they had a child, Princess Charlotte, he sent his wife away and had servants and governesses rear up Charlotte. Princess Charlotte, born in 1796, was wildly popular with the public. As the only child of George IV, she grew up under the understanding that she was destined to be Queen of England by virtue of her birth. 
the British public were hopeful for Charlotte because first you've got the Mad King, then you've got Charlotte's father, who's this huge jerk that no one likes. People loved her youth, and I think to some extent, they were excited by the prospect of a do-over with a woman. She would have been the first queen outright since Queen Anne more than 100 years prior, Anne being the queen from the 2018 film The Favourite. We're still not to Victoria yet, but stay with me because all of this is important. Charlotte married a German prince named Leopold of the Saxe-Coburg house. Leopold was to become a big deal in Victoria's life, so remember his name. Soon after they married, Charlotte became pregnant. The country was ecstatic about the prospect of a royal baby to the beautiful young princess who all believed would soon be their queen. It was on par with the mania that surrounds William, Catherine, Harry, and Meghan. But then, in a tragic turn of events, the princess died after birthing a stillborn son. Charlotte was only 21 years old, and both the Mad King and her father were still alive. And so too were the trove of brothers who now all realized that they had to get married and have a kid ASAP if their line would succeed to the throne. It was a literal race to create an heir. After George IV, the throne would pass to William, who had 10 illegitimate children with an actress. She ended up fleeing debts and went to Paris. So after Charlotte's death, William married a German princess named Adelaide. The two had two legitimate daughters, but both of them died as children. Victoria's father, the Duke of Kent, also went to Germany to find his bride. Victoire, Victoria's mother, was actually the sister of Leopold, Charlotte's husband, who was just kind of hanging out in Claremont House, the home he had shared with Charlotte. Victoire was chosen not just because she was a German princess, but she had two children from her first marriage, which had left her widowed. So the Duke of Kent was like, okay, she clearly can have kids. So he thought she was a safe bet. And then the Duke of Kent and Victoire hit the baby lottery as they quickly conceived a child. When she was eight months pregnant, the Duke of Kent got kind of freaked out about the child not being born in England. The British public were already kind of irritated by the number of Germans in the royal family. So for the future monarch to have a German mother and not be born in England was unthinkable. So at eight months pregnant, they started the journey back to England. The Duke of Kent was deeply in debt. And George IV was like, whatever, bro, make your own way across. I won't help you. So he ended up buying a horse and carriage and driving him and his eight months pregnant wife himself. And just remember, there weren't asphalt roads. They were driving through mountain and country on a wing and a prayer. It's a wonder Victoria wasn't born on the road. But Victoria must have had an iron will because she managed all the way back to England and Victoria was born at Kensington Palace on May 24th, 1819. And I did not know this, but her full name was Alexandrina Victoria, and that was because Tsar Alexander I was her godfather. Okay, so Victoria is now the first legitimate grandchild of George III, who again is still alive. The order of succession goes George IV, Duke of York, then Duke of Clarence, who's William, that I mentioned earlier, then Duke of Kent, then Victoria. A little less than a year after her birth, her father, the Duke of Kent, died from pneumonia. Six days later, Mad King George III died, and George IV took over. A few years later, the Duke of York died, as did George IV, leaving William King and Victoria the next in line to the throne. Chapter 2. The Kensington System Prince Edward, the Duke of Kent, died less than a year after Victoria was born. Her mother, Victoire, was now a single mom in a foreign country, didn't really speak English, and was despised by the royal family. Victoire was also a princess, albeit of a much smaller country, so she had a certain natural entitlement and was resolute that she would see her daughter become queen so that she could also receive the glory due to the queen's mother. Before he died, the Duke of Kent had a private secretary named Sir John Conroy. Conroy was an officer in the British Army and was just one of those people born with a chip on their shoulder and just never believed that he was getting as much as he deserved. He married and had six children before he was employed by the Duke of Kent. After the Duke's death, Conroy stayed around as a personal secretary, comptroller, and personal advisor to the Duchess of Kent. It's never been formally proven that the two were lovers, but that is definitely how it seems and how everyone at the time viewed them. Victoire was utterly dependent on Conroy, and it seems like it was at least mildly emotionally abusive. He was a very handsome man and knew how to flatter women, so he would flatter and compliment her in order to manipulate her to do his will or take on his positions. 
ever the social climber, Conroy believed that if he kept Victoria utterly dependent on him and her mother, that they would yield even greater power once Victoria became queen. As such, he helped the Duchess form what they called the Kensington system, and yes, they even said it was a system with a capital S. Victoria had been born at Kensington Palace, also the future home of both Princess Margaret and Princess Diana, and after the death of her father, she and her mother were given some grace and favor apartments there. Not the whole palace, mind you. And also keep in mind that while it's a grand, meticulously well-maintained palace now, at the time, it was far away from court and kind of a crumbling mess. So step one of the Kensington system was by nature of its location, isolation. They kept Victoria completely isolated from the rest of the royal family, much to the chagrin of King William. The Duchess was absolutely loathed by the rest of the royal family because of her behavior toward both Conroy and Victoria, as well as the fact that she was a foreign princess who kind of acted as though she was better than everyone else. Victoria was invited to many royal engagements and balls, but most of them were refused by her mother. The Kensington system also had a few more strict rules. Victoria was never allowed to go downstairs without holding someone's hand. She had to sleep in her mother's room. I've heard differing accounts on whether or not she was supposed to sleep in the same bed or not, but can you imagine sleeping in your mom's room until you're 18? She was also not allowed to have any, any personal free alone time. She always had to have either her mother, Conroy, Conroy's daughter, Victoire, another Victoire whom Victoria detested, or Victoria's governess, the German Baroness Lizen. Victoria had to adhere to a strict schedule of lessons and outdoor exercise time, which that part wasn't bad, other than the fact that Victoria wasn't a super bookish person. She liked to write stories and paint, and she was fond of singing, dancing, and the theater, but yeah, regular studies, not really her jam. The last major restriction under the Kensington system was food. Victoria loved food. She loved to eat. That would become a thing for her as she aged, but she was a relatively thin child. Conroy and the Duchess forbade her from eating sweetmeats and gave her a strict diet of foods that she didn't really like. A common dinner for her would be bread and milk served in a silver bowl. They also made snide comments about her weight, so not much has changed there in terms of how we treat young girls and food. Her uncles, as well as her own father, had indulged greatly in fine foods and grew to be very large men, so I think there was some concern of that with her. Victoria also was only 4 feet 11 inches tall. She was extremely short, and there was concern that she gained too much weight on such a short frame. That was another thing I didn't know about her. I'm 5 foot 9, I would have towered over the queen. Her only playmates during this time were her older half-sister, Theodora, which I had no idea she had a sister at all, and then Conroy's daughter, who was both thrust upon her and a spy for her father. Victoria also had a beloved pet, a King Charles Spaniel named Dash, who had originally been given to the Duchess by Conroy. So her lonely childhood passed, and it was around 1830 when George IV took ill that she realized for the first time that she was, without a doubt, going to be queen someday. Up until this point, it was assumed that one of her uncles would have had a son, but that time had come and gone, and it was just down to Victoria. She was about 11 years old here. Victoria received frequent letters of advice from her uncle Leopold, Princess Charlotte's widower. When Victoria visited him, she kind of had a taste of freedom for the first time, and that plus a healthy ego thanks to the knowledge that, hey, I'm going to be queen one day, I won't have to deal with this guy anymore, that Victoria realized just how much she hated Conroy and the Kensington system. Like her grandfather and uncles, Victoria was a very stormy child who had lots of moods and tantrums. This was to continue throughout her life, and we'll talk a little on that later. In 1831, she was despondent when Uncle Leopold left to become the king of the newly formed country of Belgium. The people there apparently wrote him and were like, hey, so want to come be our king? And he was like, yeah, I'm there. That was very surprising and weird to me, but I guess it was because he was a German prince and affiliated with the English royal family. He was considered neutral between France and the Netherlands. Now that it was a sure thing that Victoria was going to be queen, Conroy was stepping up his game. William was not super healthy, so he and the Duchess both assumed he'd be dead pretty fast, and with Victoria under 18, the Duchess would be the regent, which would mean that Conroy would have the power he felt he deserved. The Duchess and Conroy didn't want Victoria around the royal family, but they also knew that the people needed to see Victoria to know that she was there and viable. They started organizing these little progresses where Victoria would travel the country and do things like ribbon cuttings. 
PR was at the forefront of Conroy and the Duchess's minds. So they wanted people to know that Victoria was not only young and healthy, but not mad like her grandfather had been. They also knew that George IV and William hadn't been too popular with the public, so they wanted Victoria to get the Charlotte treatment with people believing her to be their new hope. But Victoria got older and William wasn't dying. In fact, he was getting really pissed off that Victoire was not only rude to him and his wife, she wouldn't let Victoria go to his coronation because Victoria wouldn't stand front and center. But he was also mad that they were making these progresses and acting as though they were royalty, like they were demanding military gun salutes when they'd go out, something normally reserved for the actual monarch. He wasn't mad at Victoria, though. William knew it was all her mother and Conroy. So he literally stayed alive to spite the Duchess so that Victoria would be of age to take the throne. In a truly hilarious and wonderful speech at his last birthday party, he said, I trust to God that my life may be spared for nine months longer. I should then have the satisfaction of leaving the exercise of the royal authority to the personal authority of that young lady, heiress presumptive to the crown, and not in the hands of a person now near me who is surrounded by evil advisors and is herself incompetent to act with propriety in the situation in which she would be placed. Those are some words. Victoria knew that her mother and Conroy's behavior was making her look bad, and she grew more resentful. And she was also kind of walking on eggshells because she didn't want to upset the king, but she also had no power or sway over her mother. When William's health started to turn and Victoria was nearing 18, Conroy got desperate. Victoria made her displeasure with both he and her mother known, and without a regency, Conroy knew he'd get kicked to the curb. He took advantage of Victoria being ill with a life-threatening fever and drew up documents saying that she would make Conroy her private secretary when she was queen. Victoria, however, despite how ill she was, refused to sign. They then tried another track. They tried to get her to sign a document saying that she felt she was too young and inexperienced to be a monarch and that she wanted a regent till she was 21 and it should be her mom. She refused that too. One month after she turned 18 years old, Victoria was awoken by her mother and told that the Archbishop of Canterbury was there to see her. That could mean only one thing. Victoria took the meeting with the Archbishop alone. She refused her mother or anyone else entry as she met her destiny. Chapter 3. The Young Queen After years of waiting, wondering, and biding her time under the oppressive rule of a man she hated who wasn't even related to her, Victoria was queen. Her first act as queen was to get some damn alone time, and she had a bed made up for her outside of her mother's room, which to me is just so satisfying. The Duchess of Kent treated Victoria as a stepping stone to power and treated her second best to this weirdly controlling man who may or may not have been her lover. And here's the part where our heroine gets her freedom. The next person Victoria would meet shaped her early reign and is in many ways responsible for Victoria developing her confidence on the throne. Lord Melbourne was the prime minister and a Whig. Now, to all my UK listeners, because apparently you all listen the most outside of the United States, please let me know if I get this wrong, but here is a quick primer on how UK parliamentary politics work. The UK has a parliamentary system with two houses, the Houses of Lords and the Houses of Commons. The Lords are made up of the peerage, so all the people who have titles like Duke, Earl, or Baron, and the Commons are elected officials known as MPs. Unlike here in the US, which is for all intents and purposes a two-party system, there are many parties in the UK However, the two main ones have historically been the Whigs and the Tories. The Whigs are now the Liberal Party. Tories are conservative. In Victoria's time, the monarchy hadn't been a constitutional monarchy for all that long. So while she didn't have absolute power the way our friends the Tudors did, she did enjoy more power than the current queen has. Now, the prime minister is the leader of whatever party wins the most seats in parliament in an election. And so long as he or she maintains that majority, they stay in power. If they start to lose their grip and their votes start getting a little bit too close, that's usually when they're expected to resign. And let me tell you, I found researching Victoria to be tremendously helpful in understanding the British system because prior to this, I had no idea what was going on with Brexit. Okay, primer done. Keep all that in mind because it's actually quite important in her early reign. So Lord Melbourne, when he meets Victoria, he's 58 years old, but still considered quite handsome. He's one of those guys who's a natural storyteller. He's got a story for everything. He's a charmer, quite good at flattery. 
and for a prime minister, has quite a few scandals under his belt. For one, he was a prime minister under William IV right before Victoria, and William dismissed him because he didn't like the reforming ways of the party at the time. This is interesting because it was the last time a monarch in the UK has dismissed a prime minister for not going along with their wishes. Perhaps his most amazing scandal that I just completely ate up is that his wife ran away with Lord Byron. Lord Byron. If you have not yet listened to the very first episode of Storical about the life of Mary Shelley, please do so immediately for more of my thoughts on Byron. Melbourne's wife, Carolyn, ran away with Byron. Then, when he got tired of her, she went back to her husband and became something of a stalker to Byron. So he wrote a nasty poem about her, and she's the one who said that Byron is mad, bad, and dangerous to know. As you, my dear listeners, know by now, I get very tickled when we have these famous people all adjacent to each other. I bring all of this up because within this context, and knowing how Victoria had absolutely loathed John Conroy telling her what to do, she ate up everything Lord Melbourne said with a spoon. They would spend hours together every day talking and writing together. He really went above and beyond to tutor her in the ways of being a queen. He also was something of a flatterer and an enabler. As a lord, even though he was a reforming Whig, he was still pretty keen on maintaining the status quo. And he was pretty dismissive to the plight of the poor, which in turn meant that Victoria, she who loved Oliver Twist and tried to meet Charles Dickens for 30 years, if you didn't listen to the Charles Dickens episodes, go listen to those too, basically ignored the suffering of her people largely due to Melbourne's influence, at least in the beginning. Now, something else to remember about a constitutional monarchy is that it works because the monarch has to be indifferent and not partial, at least publicly, to any party over the other, which is why you don't hear Queen Elizabeth commenting on Brexit or Boris Johnson. The 18-year-old new queen, who has spent her life in isolation without a father figure, became a diehard Whig under Melbourne's influence. I personally don't think Melbourne was anything near a John Conroy character, and I think he genuinely viewed Victoria as a friend, but something about the relationship I find a little dark and manipulative. Victoria decided to move her residence and was the first monarch to live in Buckingham Palace. It had previously been a mere house, but it was greatly expanded under Victoria's grandfather and uncles. She banished Conroy from the palace, and she made her mother take rooms in another wing so that she wouldn't have to see her. They would remain on frosty terms until Victoria started having children. But overall, the public was quite joyous to have the new queen. She was wildly popular, probably at least in some parts of the horrible Kensington system. Since she'd been so isolated, people didn't know much about her and could project anything they wanted. In fact, she had been so isolated from the public apart from her progresses, people weren't clear on what her actual name was. Remember, Alexandrina Victoria. But a little over a year after that fateful day when she was told she was queen and kicked her mother and Conroy out, Victoria was crowned. A brand new special crown had to be made for her because St. Edward's crown, which was traditionally used, was five pounds and built for a large man's head. Whereas you've got petite, not even five feet Victoria. The crown made for her is called the Imperial State Crown, and it's that little blue one you think of when you think of Victoria. It's stripped down now, but still on view in the tower. Her coronation was viewed by 400,000 people on the street and was five hours long, which is a good thing I'm not royalty because I would hate something that long. During the ceremony, the archbishop jammed the ring on the wrong finger and she had to stop herself from crying out. The only other snafu was that an elder peer started to fall down the stairs and Victoria caught him, which definitely ingratiated her even more to the people. When it was all said and done, She went back to Buckingham Palace and gave Dash a bath. Chapter 4, Victoria and Albert Victoria is interesting because she's from a time when women were still being told that the man is the head of the family and should be dominant and that women shouldn't have rights. But during her reign, these attitudes began to change, although not necessarily with her along for the ride. I bring this up because I find it fascinating that Victoria took her time when it came down to the marriage gate. She decided that she didn't want to marry for a while, if at all. Queen Elizabeth I was very much on Victoria's mind. Not only was she considered one of the greatest monarchs, man or woman of all time, but she decided to rule herself and didn't allow others to choose a husband for her. It had been suggested, and Victoria had toyed with the idea of becoming Elizabeth II as her coronation name, but ultimately decided to go with her own name. 
between these thoughts about Elizabeth and her desire to just have some freaking alone time without anyone telling her what to do, our young queen remained unattached for three years. Now, there were two big crises, which honestly sounds so silly now in modern times, but these two mistakes really marred her early reign. The first was the bedchamber crisis. Her dear Lord M., which is what she called Lord Melbourne, only won the passage of a bill by five votes in 1839. Here's where our primer comes in handy. So since he only won by such a tiny margin, he decided to resign as prime minister because he didn't think he could form a government that could get things done. Victoria reacted as well as you'd expect. As a child, she had been stormy, and that didn't change as queen. They blamed it on her Hanoverian genes. The Hanovers were very shouty, and this was actually a problem for her because at the time, doctors thought shouting was a symptom of madness, like that which afflicted George III. So for her entire life, Victoria was carefully watched for exhibiting signs of madness. Anyway, she cried. She begged Lord M not to resign, but he was like, lady, I have to resign. You'll be fine. Just have the Duke of Wellington be the prime minister. So she grudgingly agrees, but Wellington is like 70, so he says no and recommends a younger Tory named Sir Robert Peel. Peel is a good guy who went on to do some great things, but at this juncture, he did not impress Victoria. He had a stiff manner and wasn't a flatterer, nor was he jovial company, as had been Lord M. Then he told Victoria she had to change some of her ladies-in-waiting to the wives of Tory ministers. Her retinue, since the day of her accession, were all the wives and friends of Whigs because they were recommended by Lord M. Victoria was like, hell no, these are my friends. I'm not sending them away or replacing them. You'll have to pass legislation anyway. And Peel was super irritated and offended by this and said he could not possibly form a government without this change because it meant the queen had no confidence in him. I'm not sure if this was the outcome that she had set out to, but she was like, yeah, definitely no confidence. So you should just not be prime minister and we'll have to keep Lord M. Darn. So Lord M came back, but this whole ordeal did not make her look good. She was supposed to be above the fray, but there was zero doubt now that she was a Whig and couldn't work with the other party. The next big scandal was that of a lady-in-waiting to her mother, Flora Hastings. Flora was the daughter of a Tory family, and she was BFF with the Duchess of Kent and John Conroy. Victoria didn't allow Conroy in her presence, but he was still tight with her mother, so Victoria was looking for anything to send him away. Victoria heard a rumor that Flora Hastings, who was a very devout woman, I should mention, that she had an affair with Conroy and was now pregnant. Her belly had grown in size over a number of months, and Victoria started playing the morality card and insisted that Flora get checked out by a doctor to confirm if she was pregnant or not. Flora defended herself by writing a letter to a newspaper, which just aired the scandal out to a larger audience, and then finally submitted to the examination. It turned out that she was not pregnant, but had liver cancer, and her belly was growing because of the tumor. Her relatives seized on this and dragged Victoria in the papers. Victoria visited Flora on her deathbed to smooth things over, but the public was outraged by her behavior. Because of these scandals, and because it was apparent that Lord M alone couldn't rein in a headstrong young queen, Victoria was encouraged to seek out a husband because it was believed a husband would have a calming effect on her and would be an advisor such that she wouldn't hysterically depend on Lord M. Victoria agreed with this because she decided to finally give in to Uncle Leopold, King of the Belgians, wish for her to entertain another visit from her dear cousin Albert from Germany. Victoria had met Prince Albert back in 1836 on her 17th birthday. But in fact, her family had been plotting for the two cousins to get married since Albert was born. Victoria was born at the beginning of summer, Albert born at the end, so he was about three months younger. Their first meeting didn't go amazing. She was nice about him in her letters, but she found him too serious. Victoria was a girl who loved to stay up late dancing and singing and just having a good time. Albert was an awkward teenager who was falling asleep at the ball. So she was kind of like, okay, he's nice enough, but I'm going to live my life and maybe readdress at some point if I marry at all. Fast forward to him visiting in 1839. Her attraction was instant. She wrote in her journal, Albert is extremely handsome. His hair is about the same color as mine. His eyes are large and blue, and he has a beautiful nose and a very sweet mouth with fine teeth. But the charm of his countenance is his expression, which is most delightful. She also wrote in her journal, I love and admire him more and more. Those eyes of his are bewitching, and so is the whole face. She wrote to her uncle Leopold, Albert's beauty is most striking, and he is, in short, very fascinating. 
Victoria and Albert spent time writing together and singing duets on the piano. They were both pretty artistic people. Now, the thing was, despite her conflicted ideas on the place of a woman, as a monarch, it was illegal for Albert to propose to her. Only the monarch could propose marriage. No one else could propose to them. So five days into his second visit, she proposed to Albert. She wrote of it in her journal. At about half past 12, I sent for Albert. He came to the closet where I was alone, and after a few minutes, I said to him that I thought he must be aware why I wished him to come here, and that it would make me too happy if he would consent to what I wished, to marry me. Albert, of course, accepted, and the two were married on February 10th, 1840. And I, of course, need to read you her journal entry on the wedding night because it is peak Victoria. I never, never, both in all caps, spent such an evening, again, all caps, my dearest, dearest, dear Albert, his excessive love and affection gave me feelings of heavenly love and happiness I never could have hoped to have felt before. He clasped me in his arm and we kissed each other again and again. His beauty, his sweetness and gentleness, really, how can I ever be thankful enough to have such a husband, to be called by names of tenderness I have never yet heard used to me before, was bliss beyond belief. Oh, this was the happiest day of my life. In case you couldn't tell, Victoria was a prolific journaler. In fact, she kept a diary every day from 1832 to 10 days before her death in 1901. And there are lots of exclamations in capital letters. You can imagine her voice. I should note, though, that they were heavily edited by her daughter, so a lot of the salacious stuff is left out. Okay, so she's now married to Albert, the love of her life. She was also the person who started the tradition of wearing a white wedding dress. Her something blue was a magnificent sapphire brooch that looks similar to Princess Diana's engagement ring and is actually still worn by the current Queen of England. And that was given to her by Albert, her dearest dear. Chapter 5 Family Life and Middle Age Victoria had three years of total independence from family obligations. She was a young, single queen who was confident in herself. She relished her power and had a keen sense of duty. Once Albert came along, however, her grip on the monarchy slowly loosened. At first, she did not want to share power and shut Albert completely out of all affairs except matters of household. She continued to take meetings alone with Melbourne and her ministers and handle all matters of state alone. She was deeply in love with Albert. Their relationship is often characterized as this gooey love affair which is true to a certain extent, but from everything I've seen in the research, I'd say that while Albert loved Victoria, she definitely loved him way more than he loved her. Now, this situation for Albert was sort of unbearable. He was a serious man, an intellectual and artist who believed in the value of hard work. He saw her love of dancing and balls as frivolous and often chastised her. He was also extremely moral and devout. This coming from the fact that his parents led pretty scandalous lives, which we'll talk more about in a footnotes episode. His strong morality put him at odds with a lot of the ministers in government who just didn't trust him because he was a foreign prince and had something of a holier-than-thou attitude. It was Lord M who sounded the warning bells to Victoria and was like, hey, so your husband is definitely a big believer in being the man of the house. He needs a job stat or he's going to lose it. Victoria's solution to this was to let Albert be the person who blotted her ink so she could sign her name on official documents, which I actually find very hilarious and a total power move. For their honeymoon, he wanted to take like a month off, but she said she could only spare three days and said to him, you forget my dearest love that I am the sovereign and that business can stop and wait for nothing. But things changed when Victoria basically got pregnant on their wedding night. Victoria and Albert would go on to have nine children between 1840 and 1857. And Victoria not only hated being pregnant, she really didn't like kids. She called it the shadow side of marriage because contrary to popular opinion, Queen Victoria loved sex. I don't think Albert was the one prodding her on, but she did not like giving birth. And then after she had each child, she would experience what we today call postpartum depression. But for Victoria, everyone was like, oh, she's mad just like her grandpa. I'll do a footnotes episode just on Victoria's children, so I won't get into their lives here. But here's something she wrote about children in her journal. An ugly baby is a very nasty object. The prettiest are frightful when undressed, as long as they have their big body and little limbs in that terrible frog-like action. So blunt. I love it. All right. Because she was out of commission for so much time during these years, Albert slowly started taking over state business. 
One of the major things he did was to summarize all of her morning reports and dispatches for her. Albert also became a great patron of the arts and sciences and was responsible for bringing many great thinkers to court. His greatest accomplishment was the Great Exhibition of 1851, which was sort of like a World's Fair in London. While the public still saw him as a gold-digging foreigner, people in government grew to respect him because it was clear that he was king in all but name. People also noticed that Albert had a great influence on helping the queen calm down from her hyper-partisan ways. When Lord M had to resign again in 1841, Victoria was kind of like, okay, thanks for everything, bye, and accepted Robert Peel as the new prime minister. Melbourne gave Peel some pretty good advice on how to ingratiate himself to the queen, which also helped, and Victoria ended up loving her friendship and working relationship with Peel as well. Melbourne, of whom the capital city in Victoria, Australia is named, would only live another seven years, and his life was kind of sad and rudderless after he left his government position. He really liked having a young queen to hang on his every word and look up to him. Albert's calming influence helped Victoria accomplish several things once dear Lord M was out of the picture. First off, the constitutional monarchy had been kind of iffy. Case in point, William IV outright dismissing Melbourne when he didn't get his way. But as he got her to calm down with her partisanship and reforms passed that limited the power of both the monarch and the House of Lords in favor of the House of Commons, the blueprint of the monarchy the UK has now began to take shape. The blueprint wasn't just of the government function, however. Albert's strict morality and the many pictures, both photograph and drawing, and a wholesome royal family that lived among their people at Buckingham and attended ceremonies across the country is kind of where the current royal family takes their playbook. Now, most depictions of Victoria and Albert, like I said before, are heavy on the, oh, it's such a romantic love match. However, there's a few issues we need to note here. First off, I've alluded to this, but Victoria always had a temper. Combine that with near-constant depression thanks to pregnancy and childbirth, and she would have meltdowns and follow Albert from room to room, shouting at him. Albert was told by doctors that she probably had George III's madness, so the best thing he could do is just leave the room and write her a letter. So that would kind of piss her off even more, that he'd only communicate with her during rows via letters, and I don't know, I get that it's hard to reason with someone in a state, but I read a lot of his behavior toward her as similar to both Conroy and Melbourne. I'm not going to outright say that it was malicious or 100% intentional the way it was with Conroy, but I find Albert to be kind of patronizing, and the way he set things up left her completely dependent on Albert to a degree that when he was gone, she forgot that she had been queen on her own and was fine. He also had a tendency to scold her behavior, criticize her parenting, and kind of turn every fight they had so that it was always her fault. I personally read that as a bit gaslighty. I'm not a historian, though. I just play one on a podcast. Those are my personal thoughts and biases based on the information I found in the books, movies, and podcasts that I'll link to in the show notes and talk more about at the end of this episode. Now, another place where Albert helped Victoria was bringing her mother back into the fold. Albert could not believe that Victoria would treat her own mother so horribly, in his mind anyway, but a lot of it had to do with issues with his own mother. Anyway, because of Albert's influence, she was able to reconcile with her mother as she started having children. When her mother died in 1861, Victoria was inconsolable to the point that Albert took on everything. Now, I sort of alluded to this before, but didn't really go into detail. Remember Victoria's account that Albert was kind of sleepy at balls and such? Well, he always had a weak constitution. He was a person who was chronically ill. Victoria was a hypochondriac who had a very robust constitution, which I personally am exactly the same. Very healthy, constantly terrified of cancer, though. Because of her hypochondria, when Albert started showing signs of serious illness between 1858 and 1861, he kept this from her so as not to freak her out. So you've got this chronically ill man taking on all the state business, traveling all over the country, attending to a wife dealing with serious depression, the stress was great, and things came to a head for the prince. By 1861, Lord Palmerston, who was kind of a trigger-happy renegade of a prime minister, had the top job. Crimea had been a disaster, and now America was in the midst of civil war. The British were trying to stay neutral, but the Trent Affair in which two Confederates were taken from a British ship by the U.S. Navy. This was illegal. So this whole thing starts to erupt, and Palmerston is ready to send this belligerent message back to the U.S., which was certain to start a war. 
Albert reviewed and rewrote the dispatch so it was much more diplomatic and crisis was averted. This was November-ish of 1861 and was the last piece of state business Albert would attend to. Their eldest son and heir to the throne, Bertie, later King Edward VII, where the Edwardian period comes in, was rumored to be carrying on with a mistress. Albert decided to travel to Cambridge to reprimand his son. He had been suffering from stomach pains for quite some time, although again, hiding it from Victoria. When he returned home, he was gravely ill. Doctors diagnosed him with typhoid fever, although modern doctors think it might have been Crohn's disease or stomach cancer, as those fit the symptoms a bit better. Prince Albert died on December 14, 1861. Victoria blamed Bertie for his death, and their relationship was rocky for many years after. Chapter 6 The Widow of Windsor Victoria's grief over the death of her beloved Prince Albert was crippling. She wore black for the rest of her life, and even had Albert's clothes made up for him every day as though nothing had happened. During her reign, the prevailing belief was that women had no business attending funerals, so she skipped out on his funeral and went straight away to Windsor Castle. This was in 1861. She didn't die until 1901, and in all that time, she rarely visited London, instead choosing to stay at one of three residences, Windsor Castle, Osborne House on the Isle of Wight, and Balmoral. She still carried out her royal duties, but it took a lot of coaxing from Palmerston to get her to do things at first. She skipped ceremonies and didn't open Parliament for several years. To her people, she became invisible. She went from being a seemingly accessible monarch living amongst them in London to being this ghostly matron, all in black, rarely seen. At first, the public and members of government were highly sympathetic. On the one hand, after Albert died, people finally started to appreciate all the good work he had done and saw that he was running a lot of the state business. On the other, people knew that Victoria and Albert were a love match and saw something human and endearing in it. But as the years went by and she still didn't seem to recover herself, talk began to escalate about getting rid of the monarchy. People were upset because she was still drawing money from the civil service, but in their view, wasn't doing anything, although she was still doing the work, just not the numerous public engagements she used to do, more like handling dispatches and reports and taking private meetings. During this time, she was known as the Widow of Windsor, and her life was consumed with the following activities. Marrying her children off across the royal houses of Europe, commissioning as many memorials to Albert as she possibly could, Charles Dickens remarked that he needed to move to a cave to escape all the Albert memorials, and just encouraging as much imperialism as she could possibly get. The empire grew five-fold during her reign, and she was delighted to become Empress of India, something that she had pushed for a while, and her flattering Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, who kind of had the Lord M effect, let her have the title. It's such an interesting contrast to Elizabeth's reign because the British Empire has lost so much territory since Victoria gobbled up all that land. That's where the saying, the empire on which the sun never sets, comes from because they owned a quarter of the globe. The sun was up somewhere. It was a full decade before they were able to coax Victoria out of her cocoon. She still mostly stayed out of the public eye, but she got more involved again after a series of near disasters. First, Bertie, whom she blamed for Albert's death, actually got typhoid fever, and on the date of Albert's death, miraculously recovered. The queen attended a public mass of thanksgiving for that. Then a short time later, there was an assassination attempt. Those incidents, along with her golden and diamond jubilees, endeared her to her people once more. In her later years, she had a very deep personal relationship with a servant. Many accused her of impropriety, although there's no evidence. John Brown, her Scottish servant, who is very informal and blunt. Her children and other government ministers despised him and kind of looked on it as a John Conroy situation the way she had with her mother. Brown was her secretary and companion, and she got the nickname Mrs. Brown. He ended up dying in 1883. Victoria's final years were quiet. Her daughter actually died on the same day as Prince Albert. And ever since Albert's death, she had put on a great deal of weight due to comfort eating. By the end, she could barely walk and had pretty bad cataracts. Over a period of a few months, her health declined, but she and her family were kind of in denial about it. So when she died, it was a huge shock to the nation. 
Bertie and Kaiser Wilhelm II, who was her grandson, yes, the Kaiser from World War I fame, were at her side when she died on January 22, 1901, at the age of 81. She hated black, which is kind of funny considering that's all she wore for 40 years. So she requested people wear white, and she also wanted a military funeral as the daughter of a military man. Because it had been 64 years since the death of a monarch, generations had passed, and no one really knew what the customs were. So while they followed her instructions, things kind of got made up as they went along, and state funerals now follow a similar format. In fact, I read an article recently about how the current queen has all the plans and logistics down on lock, so hopefully when that happens, there won't be quite so much surprise and turmoil. She was buried in a white dress and veil. In her casket was placed a plaster cast of Albert's hand as well as his dressing gown. Then sneakily, someone put a lock of John Brown's hair in her hand and covered it with flowers so no one would see. So read into their relationship what you will. Queen Victoria was the longest reigning monarch of England and the UK until 2015, when Elizabeth II, her great-great-granddaughter, surpassed her. Chapter 7. Long Live the Queen. Victoria had 10 prime ministers, outliving eight of them. She had nine children and 42 grandchildren. She was known as the grandmother of Europe. The quote often attributed to her, we are not amused, is probably a let them eat cake situation. She denied ever having said it, but that plus her prolonged mourning and the strict morality of family life she and Albert cultivated led to the Victorian era being remembered as a stiff buttoned up time period. But as I've said in other episodes, the Victorians were freaks who were just bad at embracing their freakiness. And Victoria actually apparently had a very loud, expressive laugh where you could see her gums and everything. She and Albert apparently liked crude slapstick comedy, which completely changed my world to find out. Such a long life can't be contained in a one hour long episode, though. So I'll be back over the next few weeks with some footnotes episodes expanding on some of the topics I couldn't go in depth on today. In the meantime, let's talk recommendations. First off, for nonfiction, there were two sources I relied on heavily. The first was a YA-focused biography of Victoria, which I enjoyed because it was all the events straight to the point. There's lots of, shall we say, more grown-up biographies, but this one was good in a pinch. It's called Victoria, Portrait of a Queen by Catherine Reef. Second, I think I've mentioned this podcast before, but there's a podcast called Rex Factor that ranks every monarch of England and the UK. It's got two hosts, one who tells you the history and the other who kind of makes funny little observations and quips. They have a five-part series on Victoria, two episodes just on her life, and then another three that detail the work of all 10 of her prime ministers. I found this series fascinating and very well done. I also enjoyed their episode on Henry VIII as well. Definitely check out Rex Factor. It's really good. There's a few other fascinating podcasts about more specific events in her life that you should also check out. History Extra is one of my favorite websites, and their podcast is super enlightening. The episodes Queen Victoria Behind Closed Doors, The Morning of Queen Victoria, and Queen Victoria's Dinners and Henry VIII's Niece. Seriously, check all those episodes out. Like I said before, link in the show notes. Last, you need to listen to Victorian Secrets. It was a podcast hosted by Stephen Fry, but you can get it on Audible as an audiobook. This series is absolutely delightful. I think there's 12 episodes. I listened last year, so I can't quite remember, but they have some really fascinating shows. They have one episode on sexuality during the time, an episode on race in the Victorian era. There's an episode dedicated to Sherlock Holmes, dangerous women, spiritualists, and asylums. A lot of the Audible reviews complain that this is overproduced, but I think that's because this was originally a podcast. So just go into it knowing that and you'll love it, I promise. Okay, now let's move on to fiction because I know that's what you're all here for. If you're listening to this podcast, my assumption is that you saw the young Victoria on opening day back in 2009. I know I did. Emily Blunt is my lady crush, and this was the first time I had ever heard about Victoria before she was an old widow dressed in black. I love everything about this movie and had a ton of fun dancing around Kensington Palace and pointing things out when I went like a year after the movie came out. If you haven't seen the movie, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Go see it. This is definitely the highly sentimental love storytelling, but it's still great. Next, there are two historical fictions that I read about Victoria. 
The one I think is better, like more factually correct, actually covers the whole reign, comes across as very Victorian. It's called Victoria Victorious by Jean Platy. Like Alison Weir, she has a whole series of first-person narrated novels about famous English queens. If you like your historical fiction to basically be a dramatic telling of a biography, this is the one for you. If, however, you're more a Philippa Gregory, you like things more fun and sexed up, then you should read and or watch Victoria by Daisy Goodwin. She wrote a TV series for BBS Masterpiece about Victoria, and there's a novel of it as well. I really love the novel. I was totally captivated. It seems pretty inaccurate, though. Like, she's proposing to Lord M and things like that. This one focuses heavily on her early queendom and relationship with Lord M. Albert is basically an afterthought, and it ends when they get married. I saw a few episodes of the TV show after I read the book, and it's basically verbatim. I laughed, though, because in the PBS masterpiece, Rufus Sewell is Lord M. He was the bad guy from A Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger, and I'm sure he's in other things, but that's what I know him from. And from the time, like 12 years ago, when he yelled at me because my friend wanted a picture with him at a Feist concert in Los Angeles, and I didn't know how to work her cutting-edge Motorola razor, and he yelled at me to hurry up. And that's my Rufus Sewell story. I'm going to leave it there for recommendations because, like I said, there's going to be some upcoming footnotes episodes that get deeper into things. So happy new year, lovely listeners. I hope it's a great one. If you are so inclined, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps me game the algorithm so that other people can find the show. And join me again next month when we look at the life of a renowned jazz age dancer and the first black woman to star in a major Hollywood movie.